Gone But Not Forgotten. It's episode five of... From Downtown! Hello, and I'm back. I know you've missed me, um, and I know all two of my listeners were worried, um, but I was sick, and I was on vacation, and since my sponsors were so understanding of my situation, they let me take three weeks off. Anyways, a lot has happened in the time since. Um, the Bucks and Suns are all tied up at two games apiece in the NBA Finals. Coaches were being fired, and they're now being hired. The NBA Draft Lottery happened. Benjamin Franklin Simmons is on the trade block. Kawhi Leonard just underwent ACL surgery for a partially torn right ACL. There's the Space Jam coming out. There's basketball, more basketball, never-ending basketball. So there's so much to talk about now, but I'm going to start with the finals because that's the only real basketball being played right now, and then I'll get into some of the other subjects. So the finals. Uh, you probably hear the dog in the background. That is Misha, who is a golden retriever, a puppy, not very old. Suns, Bucks, all tied up at 2-2. So going into the playoffs, I thought the Bucks were going to win the championship. You can check the receipts if you want on episode one, I believe, or episode two. You could listen to all four episodes if you want. That would really help me go from 13 listens to... 17. And I still think the Bucks are going to win the championship now that it's tied up at two apiece. Their defense has been excellent all throughout the playoffs. They have the best player in the series in Giannis. And their two losses were more fluky, I think, than people realize. So let's talk about games one and two, which the Suns won, and kind of how those, those wins that they got were a little odd. So game one, the Suns won 118 to 105. But a lot of that advantage came from the refs basically being bad at their jobs. Um, the Suns took 26 free throws over 98.9 possessions, so almost 100 possessions. In the regular season, they averaged 19 free throw attempts per 100 possessions, which was the second lowest in the league. The Pelicans led the league with 25.8 free throw attempts per 100 possessions. So the Suns basically went from being one of the worst teams at generating free throws to being the best team at generating free throws in game one. What makes the free throw attempt jump more inexplicable is that the Bucks also committed the third fewest fouls per 100 possessions at 17.9 in the regular season. They're a team that doesn't commit a lot of fouls. And they also only had 18 in game one. So they were well, well within where they normally are in terms of fouling, which is something they do, do a lot of. So what this is to say is that the refs pretty much bailed the Suns out with the whistle in game one. Based upon the number of fouls that the Bucks committed based upon the number of shooting fouls and free throw attempts the Suns normally generate, you would, you would look at those two numbers and you'd say there's no way they're going to get to the line 26 times in this game. Pretty much the Suns overperformed the, whatever you want to say in terms of when they got fouls, they got them and they turned into free throws, which is not something they normally do. 
I also forgot to mention that Giannis was like at maybe 75% in game one after suffering what we all thought was a devastating knee injury. Turned out just to be a hyperextension. And the fact that he played it all in game one was absurd. But he was at 75%. And so you kind of take the crazy free throw over performance, just getting free throws. And then you have to factor that the Suns hit 25 of 26 free throws. No matter what, that's overperformance. And game one, the 13-point victory is not all that impressive. They beat the Bucks with their best player at 75%. They got an incredible number of free throws, pretty much that the refs were giving them in a way that you would never expect. And then they hit an absurd number of them. You add that all up and you get a 13-point victory when you're at home. Um, kind of fluky. So it's not saying that they shouldn't have won game one, but it's to say that like the, the advantage that they had wasn't really them playing like a better team as much as I think it looked like over the course of the game. So game two, Suns won 118 to 108. So apparently if the Suns want to win, they have to get to 118 points, which with the way the Bucks have been shooting isn't so crazy. So in game two, Misha, I'm trying to record a podcast, but that's a great point. So what Misha was saying is this game, the whistle the referees normalized back to where it should be. So the Suns all of a sudden didn't have this crazy free throw advantage, which if you look at game one, obviously an aberration. I know I'm getting to it. The Suns, they're a jump shooting team, right? They're not going to get to the line a ton. And Giannis was racking up freebies for the Bucks because that's what he does because he's six foot eleven. Thank you, Misha, for helping out. So the only reason the Bucks ended up losing this game is because the Suns hit 50% of their three-pointers. They took 40, and they hit 20. The Suns were a good three-point shooting team in the regular season. They hit 37.8%, uh, top third of the league mark. But if they had hit that mark in game two, they would have only hit 15 threes, which would have been 15 fewer points, seeing as they won by 10, they would have then lost by five. All right? So like I said, games one and two are really fluky. That's how the Suns got up 2-0. And that's how they got up 2-0 by what looked like comfortable margins. Game one, the referees bailed them out with an absurd number of free throws. And game two, they hit 50% of their threes at an incredible volume. That's how you win games in the NBA. If you hit a bunch of threes, you're probably going to win. So... Let's talk about the next two games that the Bucks won, which I think are pretty simple. Games three and four make a lot of sense to me. Giannis was awesome. He was awesome in game two as well. Can't forget that. But he was awesome, especially in game three. And the Suns, it looks like, need both Devin Booker and Chris Paul to be really on to win games. Game one, Paul's dropping 32 points. And Booker chips in with 27 points for himself game two booker's a lot better i think he has 30 plus or something and paul's at about 23 right you know when they're both when they're both playing well the suns are going to be good but we saw in games three and four game three booker is bad game four paul is bad when that happens suddenly the suns are a very beatable team and the bucks on the other hand can count on Giannis to be unstoppable, which means they really only need Chris Middleton or Drew Holiday to be one of them, for one of them to be good on offense, and they have a really good chance to win. And as much as Holiday struggled to shoot in this series, his defense never takes a game off. And we can chalk up 
Chris Paul's game four stinker, a lot of it, to Drew Holiday being great on defense. And honestly, if you were to say, hey, Drew Hol- would you rather have Drew Holiday shut down Chris Paul but shoot 25 to 33% over the series, or would you rather him shoot 40% but Chris Paul gets what he wants? I think Bucks fans, knowing how good Middleton and Giannis can be, would take Holiday shutting down Chris Paul. And so far, he's done a pretty good job of that. Really, for the Bucks to win this series, because now it's the best of three, they just need Middleton to play well in two more games and have Holiday have two nights where he shoots 40%, which is not exactly a huge ask, and they'll win this series. And I think what this series is exposing is why teams do whatever they can to have a big three. Dynamic duos are great, but they really limit your margin for error in terms of health and performance. Look at what happened with the Lakers. Injuries, one of their dynamic duo, gone, right? Look at the Suns. When one of Paul or one of Booker isn't good, they're a beatable team. And, you know, that's why you have a big three. You only need two players to be really good in a game to win a lot of times. And when you have three guys that are capable of being really good very often, obviously makes your margin for error really, really, really high. I mean, the Nets, even with Kyrie or even with Kyrie or Harden injured, if one of those two guys had been fine, I think the Nets beat the Bucks. You know, you get the big three because a big three guarantees every night, more or less. Yeah. A big three guarantees every night, more or less, that you have a big two at the very least. And that's really what you need. You need two guys playing exceptionally well. All right. Now we've talked about the final series. We'll talk about that more next week. Uh, Maybe the series will be over. Maybe it won't. But I want to talk about the head coaching carousel that is the NBA. And I'm calling this the Kenny Powers, you're fucking out, I'm fucking in, NBA coaching carousel section. Undaunted, I knew the game was mine to win. So that is why I am better than everyone in the world. You're listening to the audiobook, You're Fucking Out, I'm Fucking In, by Kenny Powers. So let's start with the two problematic hirings and probably the two best job openings in terms of who you get to coach. We have the Dallas Mavericks. Rick Carlisle, you're fucking out. Jason Kidd, you're fucking in. So I see this, honestly, for the Mavericks as a, as a big downgrade. Kidd hasn't actually proven to be a good coach. Maybe he does prove it here. But I think this is a weird hire. And I'll get to why I think it's an especially weird hire. The next one are the Portland Trailblazers. Terry Stotts, you're fucking out. Chauncey Billups, you're fucking in. So Billups, to me, is one of the most underappreciated players of his generation. And if he's as good a coach as he was a point guard, then he'll have a very long career as a head coach. I'm glad he finally got the opportunity to lead a team. He'd been close a lot of times before. But I want to get to the problematic side of these hirings. So the Jason Kidd and Chauncey Billup signings are problematic really for one reason. Their previous transgressions, kids' domestic abuse and Chauncey Billups' sexual assault allegations, those shouldn't have prevented them from landing these jobs, right? But they should have had to answer questions about it. They should have had to publicly acknowledge their, their past and give a real statement about it 
And the franchises should have made that a part of the hiring. They really seem to kind of try to pretend like that didn't happen. In the case of the Mavericks, who had their own investigation into workplace misconduct, the hiring of Jason Kidd, who had the domestic abuse, seems really odd. Um, they've said they're trying to clean up the organization, get rid of bad behavior like that. Don't fucking hire Jason Kidd. Like, as simple as that. He also hasn't shown to be a good coach. So, like, I don't really know why. I know I know Rick Carlisle said he'd be... He thinks you'd be great for Luca, but guess what? Rick Carlisle, we'll get to him later. He doesn't want the Mavericks to be good because he wants another team that he can beat. So I think the fact that both the franchise kind of swept everything under the rug is the actual problem. It's not them getting these jobs. If the way the world wants to work where it's like if you have a bad thing in your past, you can never do anything again in your life, you're just going to, we're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to have people acknowledge stuff. You're going to have people deny things. You're not going to have people actually say the right things and do the right things. They're just going to dig down because the cost of losing, the cost of admitting you were wrong is too high. And I think this would have been a great opportunity for the NBA and these two franchises to say, no, the cost isn't too high, but the cost is you have to do these things. You have to make these statements. You have to make some sort of pledge that you'll do better in these regards because that actually makes the world a better place. What happened here didn't. And they had a chance to actually do something good. I do hope Billups does well as a coach. I don't know much about uh, the sexual assault allegations. You know, I believe it happened in 1997, very long time ago. And back then, stuff like that was never reported as well as it is now. So let's go talk about the other head coaching hirings. Let's start the, let's restart with the Boston Celtics. Brad Stevens. You're fucking promoted. You're not out. You're fucking promoted. Good job, Brad Stevens. Way to go. But Ime Udoka, you're fucking in. And if I said that wrong, I'm sorry. I'm just trying my best out here as obviously a white dude. Cut me some slack. All right. Their new hiring, apparently the stars, Tatum and Brown, like him, which is awesome. He's got a very good CV. He was working with the Brooklyn Nets, I believe. So if you have a good relationship with star players through Team USA, you got a good CV, that means you're probably a good candidate to be a head coach. Also, his boss, Brad Stevens, just got promoted. He was an excellent head coach. He knows the roster and the players very well. I think he's walking to a very good place to start his career. The front office is going to know exactly what this team needs from personality to production to fit to make this team work. So I think this is a very good situation for him, and I, hopefully it's a long tenure in Boston because, you know, you always want these guys to do well. Not all of them will. It's not always their fault. But, hey, all right, let's move on to the New Orleans Pelicans. I remember when they were the Hornets. My dad remembers when they were the Jazz. He's from New Orleans. He's older, obviously, because he remembers when they were the Jazz. Real quick, let's be real. Let's stop with the Utah Jazz. I said it in an earlier podcast, but every time I have to say it, it's just, it makes me upset. Utah is the least jazzy place maybe in the world. Okay, that's not true. That's not true. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
I would disrespect the state of Montana, which is clearly less jazzy than Utah. But anyways, let New Orleans be the jazz again. Come on. They have to play in New Orleans. Great city, but come on. Anyways, Stan Van Gundy, you're fucking out. Willie Green, you're fucking almost in. Maybe in by the time that this goes up. So congratulations, Willie Green. Real quick about Van Gundy. I feel bad for him. Like, the Pelicans traded Drew Holiday and got a bunch of stuff back for him, which means he's a good player. And they were basically just as good as they were the season before. Like, I know you expect improvement from Zion and all that stuff. But, like, if you get rid of one of your best players and a guy who's done a really good job for a team in the NBA Finals and your team is just as good the next season, I consider that progress, right? You subtracted from your roster and you didn't really subtract from your win-loss record. That seems like a decent job. But, as I'll mention with Willie Green, as long as Zion likes him, then he's the perfect fit for the Pelicans. At the end of the day, I think that's kind of the situation the Pelicans are in. They need Zion to stay there as long as possible. And if Willie Green helps that, then he's perfect. I will say he won't be able to fix this ill-fitting roster, which is kind of what did Van Gundy in. So, Willie Green... Be careful. Make sure Zion likes you, because if he doesn't love you, this front office will keep putting out an ill-fitting team and blame you for their problems, because that's what front offices do to head coaches. They're kind of dicks. All right, speaking of kind of dicks, the Indiana Pacers, Nate Bjorkren, you're fucking out. Rick Carlisle, you're fucking in. So speaking of assholes, uh, Bjorkren, Bjorkren, Bjorkgren Bjork, was apparently a nightmare when it came to relationships uh, with the players, I think the coaching staff. I mean, I think it was whatever his deal was, it was not working. So it's kind of odd that Indiana said, well, we had a coach that was bad with the relationships, but was apparently a tactical savant. Let's go bring in Rick Carlisle. That seems a little odd. Carlisle's not known for being a relationship guy. But then again, maybe bringing Carlisle in right now at this exact moment isn't such a crazy idea, and maybe it's the exact right time to bring in Carlisle, right? So let's just say Bjorkren was the worst ever. Let's just say he was a Hitler-esque type of person, just the worst in history. Well, Carlisle has a prickly reputation, but if he's basically just Mussolini in terms of his awfulness. Well, Mussolini isn't so awful compared to Hitler. So if you bring in Carlisle, who's a prickly guy coming in after what we consider to be a grade A asshole, maybe he kind of comes across as Gandhi. Maybe the guys are like, oh my God, Bjorkgren used to like yell in my face and call me all sorts of horrible things. Carlisle just, you know, makes a snide little joke. I really like that. That feels good. That feels so much better than before. I love this dude. Look, Carlisle's a great coach, and I think he's, no matter who gets him or who was going to get him, anytime you hire Rick Carlisle, that's a good hire. I don't know if he's the best coach in the NBA, but he's good enough, and he's never going to screw up the season for you. So bring him in. I think Indiana's going to be back to their perpetual six-seed life that they love to live. Good job. All right, this one won't be quick. 
Orlando Magic. Steve Clifford, you're fucking out. Jamal Mosley, you're fucking in. Honestly, I have to say this. Who cares? Look, like, the Magic are, like, in year one of a rebuild from a period of time where they were, like, an eight seed for a few seasons in the Eastern Conference. Right? The chances that Mosley is there when the Magic are good again, if they're ever good again, is really low. I hope he makes it, but the odds are really stacked against him, and it sucks when you're a first-time head coach, and the job you get is a job where your team is probably not going to make the playoffs. And as much as people in NBA circles are smart, if you take this Magic team next year and you win 30 games, you're the greatest coach maybe in NBA history. But no one's going to look at a guy who goes 30 and 52 and say, that guy's a great head coach, unless you win more games the next season and more games the next season. It's unfair. These guys that take these bad jobs, I always feel bad for them. But you know what? If you do just good enough, sometimes it ends up working out. All right, and the final head coach situation. The Washington Wizards. My Washington Wizards, even though like they're really hard to... They're really hard to root for. Not that they're bad, but the thing is, it's almost better to root for a really bad team than a really, really okay team. So, Scott Brooks, you're fucking out. And we don't know who's fucking in yet. It could be Wes Onsed Jr., whose father was a very good NBA player and was a very good Washington Wizard, or not Washington Wizard, a very good... I believe Baltimore Bullet and then potentially a Washington Bullet. I don't know if they completed the move yet. By the way, if I'm going to rant about team names, Wizards, stupid fucking name. Bring back the bullets. You literally shoot in basketball. What do you what what gets shot out of a gun? A bullet. You know what? You know why they did it? Because there's a lot of gun violence in DC in the 90s. Guess what? Changing the name didn't solve any problems. The if you don't care about gun violence go to the capitol and lobby okay the nra is to blame for gun violence not the washington bullets existing okay you took a great team name and made it a stupid team name and thought just because there was alliteration it was gonna work out okay that's dumb that's just stupid fucking wizards i will say this Whoever they hire, it's going to be an, a pretty hard for it not to be an upgrade on Scott Brooks. And I'll tell you why very quickly. The Wizards took the most mid-range jumpers in the NBA. They paired that with the fewest shots at the rim. Those are the highest percentage shots. And the second fewest threes. Those are the most high-value shots outside of shots right at the rim. So they basically were a team that had an offense designed to get the least valuable shots. It's not saying that all mid-range shots are bad. The Suns are showing that if you have really good mid-range jump shooters, taking a lot, those guys taking mid-range jump shots, totally fine. Problem is the Wizards had Bradley Beal, who's a good mid-range jump shooter. That's about it. And they just kind of let Russell Westbrook take a lot of shots he was going to miss. And that's the other problem. They need a coach who's going to build the offensive system and the offense around Bradley Beal, not Russell Westbrook like Scott Brooks did. Look, Westbrook at one point was one of the best players in the league. That's been a, it's been a while since that time, 
right? His season in Houston kind of should let people know. And the season for the Wizards, even though he racked up triple doubles, should also let you know. I wrote something about this, and I'll harp on it forever. Westbrook right now is an average NBA player. He just does it in a way that literally doesn't make any sense, where he is exceptional at things and then horrible at things. So if you watch him play and you focus on certain things, he looks like the best player in the league because he's literally amazing, and he is one of the best players in the league at certain things. But if you focus on other things, he's literally the worst player in the league, and you're like, how is he still in here? But when you wrap up amazing with horrible, you get average, and that's Westbrook right now. Don't build the offense around him. Build around Beal, who's legitimately awesome. But really, at the end of the day, the Wizards just got to get someone that makes Bradley Beal stay, which probably means getting him the ball, right? Because who doesn't love having the ball? I know when I play pickup, I like touching it. It also probably equals more wins, all right? And that's also going to help him stay, all right? So Wizards, get someone who says, guess what? We're going to de-emphasize Russell Westbrook. And if he has a problem with that, thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Okay. So outside of Kidd and Carlisle, the rest of the coaches are first-time head coaches. We'll see what the Wizards do. But I'm pretty pretty hyped about that. You know, I'm, I'm tired of the NBA, and the NFL is probably worse about this. I'm tired of them recycling head coaches. Stars win games. Coaches don't win you games. Like, I'm sorry, Phil Jackson, if he didn't coach the teams he coached, would never have a championship. Coaches don't make teams good. Stars do. Which means teams really should be more open-minded to first-time NBA head coaches, right? Because you get stuck in this cycle of using the same guys. Sure, coaches don't win you championships, but they can get you maybe a few extra wins here or there. Maybe they're a difference in a close playoff series. So go out and find a guy that's good. Look, there's 30 NBA teams. There's more than 30 good basketball coaches. And what we see a lot of times is the NBA coaches aren't all that good. Scott Brooks, NBA head coach for a long time. Guess what? You know why he got to keep his job? Because he got to coach Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook at their peak. And he also got his coach with those two guys, James Harden as he was ascending, and then Serge Ibaka at his peak. He got to keep his job, not because he was a good coach, but because he got to coach good players, right? It's pretty simple. I think teams get too shy about giving a guy a chance that no one's heard of because they think they're going to get shit from the fans and the media and they'll be like, well, they should have brought a proven guy and he couldn't relate to the other, he couldn't relate to the players, the players didn't respect him. Look, they got to hire more David Blatt's. I know David Blatt's never getting a job in the NBA. Dude coached one se- full season, made the NBA Finals, lost to the Golden State Warriors, who are maybe one of the best teams of all time in the Finals. And then he gets fired halfway through the year with the best record in the Eastern Conference. I'm not saying David Blatt got those wins because the team was talented, but I'm saying hire more guys like David Blatt right? Maybe hire David Black. Actually, don't do that. Just don't do that. I'm talking about the NBA draft lottery, just about the top of it. Um, I'll talk more about the draft in another podcast. I've done a ton of research on it from the historical value of draft picks down to where everyone's ranking guys, who's kind of, you know, what guys' body measurements give them the best upside on defense. So I've done a lot of work on that for Space City Scoop, where I write about the Rockets, and because they have a high draft pick, I get to really just cover the draft in general. So we'll talk about that more maybe next week, maybe in two as we get closer to the draft. But let's just go quickly over the top of the draft lottery, which will be the first five picks. 
So the Pistons got the top pick. Congratulations to them. Detroit needs another bailout. Joking. The Rockets avoided disaster by getting the second pick and not the fifth pick because if they got the fifth pick, it would have been sent and swapped to the Oklahoma City Thunder. They wouldn't have swapped with the Oklahoma. Would have been swapped with the Oklahoma City's pick. It would have actually been swapped with the Miami Heat's pick. So if the Rockets had landed in fifth, they would have got the 18th pick. Good thing they didn't, because if they had, uh, my life would be more sad, because I have to write about them. Anyways, the Cavaliers got the third pick. Great for them. They'll maybe do something smart, but probably not. The Raptors. I'm glad the Raptors got the fourth pick, because it is cosmic justice, karma, whatever you want to call it, for them literally not having a single home game all season. They played their home games in Tampa Bay. That is like the most fucked up shit ever. Not only that, it's kind of insane no one even talked about it. If that team had made the playoffs, it would have been like the greatest success story in the history of basketball. And the fact that they didn't, and then they get the fourth pick beating the odds, because I don't think their chances of landing the top five were all that great, is justice for them having to go through that. All right? So if there is a God, he came out, he came out with justice this time. And then the Magic got the fifth pick in when they really need a superstar, and this is maybe a four- or three-player draft where you feel very confident about their chances of being a superstar player. So I'm going to talk about the top five prospects and kind of the tiers that they're in because it's really three tiers that draft experts have. I'm not just saying this based upon, like, my own takes and my own video analysis. I'm never going to put in that amount of work watching these guys. It's just it's impossible unless you're getting paid to do it or you're crazy. So tier one and the consensus number one pick pretty much across all publications is Cade Cunningham. The reason being is he's got a super high floor. You watch him play, you watch his ability to shoot and get his own shot off at his size. He's basically his floor is an all-star, right? I don't know if he'll be the floor is one-time all-star, 10-time all-star, but like the guy is going to be a productive NBA player barring injury you know, something in his personal life, all right? And he's also got MVP upside. He's got one of the best offensive players in the league upside at six foot eight with the way he moves. He also will almost for sure be a decent defensive player. Does that mean if he's your number one option on offense, he's going to be an elite defensive player? Probably not. But it means he's someone that teams won't be able to just mercilessly target like a Damian Lillard or in some cases Steph Curry. So he'll never be a defensive target or complete negative and his floor is an all-star upside mvp that's why he's number one pick that's why everyone wants it so the second tier right beneath Cade cunningham are jalen green and evan mobley uh jalen green for for goad for went or whatever english language is my first one but clearly i'm not great at it he did not go to college he opted instead for the nba g league ignite program and he was really good Um, You watch any of his highlights, the way he moves, super fluid, explosive, he can really shoot. Um, He shot, I think, 37, 35, 37% from an NBA three-point range. Remember, college guys, closer, so you like that. Shot well from the free throw line. He's oozing with potential. You watch him, and you can see, like, the comps for me would be like, oh, like, like, the best case scenario is he's like a Michael Jordan in the modern game. 
Obviously, people don't like comparing people to Michael Jordan, but I'm saying like an incredible score first two guard that could also be a lo- maybe a lockdown perimeter defender. The physical abilities there, he's awesome. Um, I really like him. I, if the Rockets stay at number two, he's who I want them to pick. I think he's got the most upside. But the other guy, Evan Mobley, who played at USC, very, very, very good. He's the only player with, uh, since Anthony Davis. Or is that the only player since it? He's the only player outside of Anthony Davis since they've been tracking these advanced box score numbers in college, which is not admittedly not very long, who led the NCAA in win shares and box plus minus, right? Another freshman to lead in box plus minus, but not win shares because they missed time, um, was Zion Williamson. So, like, his statistical output for in his one season in college, when you consider the fact that he's a freshman, pretends an incredibly good future in the NBA He's a center. He's six foot eleven. He moves well. He's someone that looks like he could defend on the perimeter and be a good help side defender. Maybe not elite against low post behemoths, but let's be real. There's not that many of those guys, and being able to defend on the perimeter is much much more important now. So he's someone that could be an all defensive player, and their ceiling is much like Cade Cunningham's, and that like they could both become MVPs, right? Guys that get drafted in the top three. Everyone thinks they have, you know, MVP upside. But these guys really do. Uh, that's how good this draft is. Um, and they potentially have an even higher ceiling than Cade Cunningham just because their physical attributes are better. But their floors are definitely lower. There's a world where Evan Mobley's offensive game never really develops and he ne- doesn't really become the type of perimeter defender people think. And he's you know, a skinnier guy, so he's not quite as good in the post as people hoped. And he's, you know, a good NBA player, but he's not going to be someone that, you know, makes the all-star team or changes your team's trajectory completely. And then there's the chance that Jalen Green just, he's just a score first guy and he ends up being Zach Levine. And Zach Levine's great, but Zach Levine isn't going to win MVP. Zach Levine isn't going to lead the Bulls to a championship. So you get a guy that's maybe an all-star because the way his game is makes people like him but who's not moving the needle as much as you would want from a guy who you selected the first three picks. And then tier three after these guys are Jalen Suggs from Gonzaga, who hit that amazing uh, buzzer beater in overtime in the final four to go to the championship game against UCLA. If you haven't seen the video, definitely go check it out. It's Jalen Suggs and Jonathan Kaminga. I like to think of these guys as you know, they're in the same tier, but they're actually kind of like the anti-prospects of each other, right? So Suggs is the type of guy who you expect to hit the ground running in the pros, and he has a really high floor. His ceiling probably isn't MVP quality. His ceiling is like the second best player on a championship team, which is like obviously very good, but he's someone to me whose upside probably is never going to, you wouldn't say he's likely ever to be a top 10 player in the league, even if you love him. Right, but he's someone that you expect probably worst case scenario, he's like at his best seasons, he's a top fifty, top forty player, which is when we're talking about a fourth pick, that's like a really good outcome. Kaminga's the other way. Kaminga could be a nothing, a nothing burger, but he could also be the best player from this draft. His physical attributes give him the ability to potentially be a go to scorer and an unstoppable wing defender. Right? Like he's someone that has the ability to be a Paul George, Kawhi Leonard type wing player. Those guys, if they pan out, completely change the direction of your franchise. Uh, they 
they're just they're the most valuable players that you can get. Um, there was a period of time where people thought Kamingo was going to be the number one overall pick. That hasn't developed, but he's someone where if he's there at five and you're the magic and you really need a superstar, you just take him because you have another pick from uh, the Bulls through the Nikolai Vukovic trade. And yeah, is there a chance he's a nothing burger? Yeah, but there's also the chance he's the best player in this draft. And that's what, if you're a team like the Magic, who just, they're in the first stage of their rebuild and they just need something, he's the guy you take. So I want to say this about this NBA draft, the 2021 NBA draft, because I think it needs to be repeated. All five of the guys I listed would have had a shot going number one last season. The top three guys, the first three guys all would have went number one, for sure. No questions. The next two, maybe. Um, there'd be some revisionist history where people are like, oh, well, you know, LaMelo Ball, we would take him number one. No, you wouldn't. He went number three for a reason. Some people loved him, but a lot of people were scared. People still would have been scared of him, right? That's We're not going to live in that world. No one's going to be scared about taking Jalen Suggs. People might have been scared about taking Kaminga, but he probably would have still went above Wiseman. So we're talking about all five of these guys probably would have went one or two in last year's NBA draft. So the top three top three guys tiers one and two are all likely to be multiple time all-stars that's that's special right uh that might not pan out but that's the type of potential and i think that's kind of the baseline median projections for all of them is that they'll make some all-star teams and obviously they have the potential for much much more Suggs, i think is the perfect second or third option on a great team i love the way he plays he's someone that might not put up all-star like numbers but help his team win at an all-star like level kaminga's a lottery ticket he could he could totally bust, but he could be something super special. And I I think, you know, if you're the Magic or if he slipped past five because they want a sure thing, he's someone that could be a great pickup, especially for a team that's patient with him. All right. Now that the NBA draft lottery is over, I want to talk about Benjamin Franklin Simmons and how apparently he's plays last games potentially for the Philadelphia 76ers. I say potentially because I don't actually know if he's going to get moved. Sixers, are they're looking to trade Ben Simmons, but I don't think they will. And it's not because they don't want to. It's not because they shouldn't. But it's just because they probably aren't going to get fair value for him, at least if they take a step back and look at his body of work, right? So let's, let's, just, let's just start here. Ben Simmons is going to turn 25 on July 20th. Happy birthday, Ben Simmons. He's already played four NBA seasons. He missed his first season due to injury, but he's played four NBA seasons. This is what he's accomplished in four NBA seasons. He's made three all-star teams. He's made the all-NBA team, a third team, all-NBA third team, once. And he's made two all-defensive first teams. And he's had three top 20 value over replacement seasons which means he's pretty much a top 20 player in the league three times in four seasons and he has yet to turn 25 he'll be 25 next year okay so simmons has accomplished just about everything you can accomplish prior to the age of 25 as you could have asked for from a number one overall pick all right and i want to reiterate he is done this while playing in an environment that was seemingly perfectly constructed to limit limit his offensive strengths and expose his offensive weaknesses okay simmons as a player is at his best 
when he's got four shooters surrounding him and playing at a fast pace that allows him to play like what we see point Giannis for the Bucks. Pace, lots of space, let him be a battering ram, let him distribute, give him the ability to go to the rack and finish because he's incredibly good at those things. That's his offensive game. And as I already said, he's an incredible defensive player. But instead, Simmons has basically played on teams that have had limited shooting, that play at slower paces, and then ask him to play like center Giannis. The thing is, center Giannis is great for Giannis because he's good at that. Simmons isn't so good at that. He's, he's much more perimeter-oriented in just his demeanor, the way he wants to play, and his willingness to pass. Giannis will pass when guys are open, but he wants to get to the rim. Simmons wants to pass. He wants to use his driving to create passing angles, okay? And that's why you create a team with a lot of spacing so he can find shooters, and if people are scared that the shooters are going to hit shots, he gets easy layups. And let's just take a look at his career because I think people do this thing where they go, oh, Simmons doesn't feel like he's gotten better. He actually has He's gotten worse pretty much every season. But that's, to me, more of an environmental aspect. Right? His rookie season remains his best season. But if you look at the Sixers roster and the way they played, it's obvious why it was his best season. It was actually a roster and a play style that's suited to his skill sets. Hey, fuck the police. Um, anyways, they played, the Sixers played at the fourth fastest pace in the league, and this is who they had surrounding him. They had J.J. Redick, Marco Bellinelli, Robert, covered, Robert Covington shooting 37% from three, and Dario Saric hitting almost 40% of his threes. He also had the highest usage rate and, not surprisingly, the highest assist rate of his career that season. Anyways, it's not complicated why his best season on offense was his rookie season. It was the one season the Sixers had a roster and a team and a play style equipped to capitalize on what makes Ben Simmons a special player. But the thing is, Embiid's better than Simmons. I'm not going to argue with that. I think it's on a rate basis, he's clearly better. I would say Embiid, you know, injury problems and age, I might want to hitch my wagon to Simmons instead, but I doubt anyone would reasonably do that. As the Sixers essentially have run their offense more through Embiid, the spacing for Simmons has has disappeared because Embiid needs to operate in the post. And their pace has also slowed because... Embiid, for as good as he is, doesn't get up and down the court as quickly as you'd want in a Ben Simmons-oriented offense. Their pace went from fourth in Simmons' rookie season to eighth, to 19th, and then back up to 11th this season. Okay, I do think Doc Rivers really tried to push the pace to help Simmons. I don't know if it really helped as much as they would have hoped. Look, Simmons doesn't have a jumper, and he needs to start taking jump shots even if he doesn't hit them, because that's the only way he's ever going to reach his offensive ceiling. But right now, in the right environment, he can be a top 15 player. But in Philadelphia's environment, in the team that they have, the way they want to play to accommodate Joel Embiid, he can maybe be a top 30 player. Having Embiid be a top 5 player and Simmons be a top 30 player makes you a good team. But doesn't make you a championship team. And I think that's what the Sixers are realizing. So they are looking to use Ben Simmons to find a better fit next to Embiid. 
But that's going to be really hard to get fair value for Simmons because of the playoff series he had and the basically the reality that the Sixers actively tanked his trade value to accommodate Embiid. So they're in this kind of situation where they can't sell Simmons for what he's really worth based upon his ability because they hurt his production. And this is where I'm going. The Sixers have made a 25-year-old top 20 player who is under contract for four seasons available for just an all-star apparently. And this, I say apparently because I don't think they'll actually just take an all-star. There has to be something special. You know, Simmons should net a bona fide superstar. Like he almost did. He almost got them James Harden. And honestly, I think the only reason he didn't get James Harden is the Rockets said, Daryl, you fucking bitch, you quit on us and now you're going to take Harden? No. I think the, they should have taken Simmons, but you know what? Whatever, they didn't. And now... The Rockets look smart. I don't think they're going to look smart for long with that decision, but right now they look smart. So the only guy that's really a superstar and seems like he fits with Embiid is Damian Lillard. But outside of him demanding a trade, it kind of seems like the Sixers are forced to trade Simmons for 75 cents on the dollar, and they shouldn't do that. That's just not something that you do even if you find a better fit because the reality is you find someone that fits better next to Joel Embiid they still probably won't be as good and they don't get you the player you actually need to get that championship people brought up Bradley Beal he would make sense as a fit next to Embiid but that would also require the Wizards to actively pair Russell Westbrook and Ben Simmons together and you also have to remember Beal's only under contract for one more season so the Sixers would be running the risk of if it not working out, Beal leaves in free agency. I think this is the most likely option if they do end up trading Simmons. I think the Sixers will get creative and they will facilitate a batshit crazy three-way trade where they send Simmons somewhere that isn't a contender necessarily. They send Simmons somewhere in return for a solid player and picks, right? So, you know, you send him to New Orleans and, or maybe not New Orleans, but you send him to, you know, you can send him to Oklahoma City and you get Kemba Walker and you get some picks back, right? So you send Kemba Walker and some picks to Philadelphia. What Philadelphia does with those picks is they then reroute them with their own picks to land another very good player. Yes, Misha, Misha agrees. And that could be a three-way trade involving Simmons where you send Simmons somewhere to get picks to then use picks to get the superstar player that you really need. And you maybe take a guy like Kemba Walker who you can kind of just hope he has a little bit of a bounce back and fits your roster better. All right? And that's what the Sixers are in right now. They're banking on Bede's health to win a championship. And that's a scary proposition. But it's probably the best chance to give him, to get him a title. Misha, one sec. Okay? I think he needs to go out. But one final thing. Finally, and hopefully, this will be the final superstar injury of the season, and that's Kawhi Leonard's partially torn right ACL. So when news broke that he was getting surgery, I saw a lot of people saying that Kawhi was now, he was now going to exercise his player option. He wasn't going to opt out now. And I kind of laughed. And the reason why I laughed is that, like, no, Kawhi's going to opt out, and I can tell you exactly why he will, he will opt out. Reason number one, Kevin Durant 
got the max after tearing his Achilles and was going to miss all of next season. That injury has a much longer track record of seriously altering a player's career. Okay? So that's number one. Really good players still get paid when they're injured. Number two, Spencer Dinwoody, another net coincidentally, he partially tore his ACL in December, and he was dunking in June. That's six months. So Kawhi could be back at some point next season, which means he's number three, he still has a ton of leverage over the Clippers because they have Paul George for the next four or five years, and they're seriously over the salary cap. They need to keep him. They, like, they just need to keep him because if they don't keep him, by letting him go, they're not saving money to be able to then go get other free agents and bring in other guys. They're so far over the cap, basically, if they don't re-sign him, they're just getting to the cap and they can't keep adding on from there. So they need to keep him. Four, and I think this is important. With his injury history, he might want to lock it in for the next four years of max salary right now. Because if we remember, the last time we saw him, he was literally the best player in the playoffs. He was absurd, okay? Number five, if Kawhi opts in and has a hiccup in his rehab or comes back and isn't great, then he may have cost himself a lot of money, right? The last time, like I said, the last time we saw him, he was great. If he opts in, he becomes a free agent at the end of next season, guess what? and he doesn't play well, he might not get the contract he wants. If he gets hurt again, he's definitely not going to get the contract he wants. Number six, I, Kawhi is just going to opt out, and he's going to probably take the biggest offer he can get from the Clippers. Or he's going to take a one-and-one one to get to three years with the team to get bird rights, opt out again if all things go well, and get a massive long-term deal. It protects both of their futures, and that's really what I think is going to happen here. Kawhi is still going to opt out. And if he opts in, that would be a massive surprise. Just because there's no real reason for him, and the Clippers basically have to keep him around. They have to do it. All right. That concludes Episode 5 of From Downtown. Please rate, subscribe, and share with your friends, family, someone you see on the street. Could use all the publicity I could get. So next week, I'll have more talk about the finals, maybe even a champion. And I'll start getting much more in-depth on the draft, team needs, and kind of how this offseason is going to play out. A lot of fun salary cap talk. Um, Thanks for sticking around, and have a great day.